Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to episode 21 of Sheer Crime. I'm Amy. And I'm Kenzie. And today we are continuing with part two of Jody Arias, an American murder mystery, the murder of Travis Alexander. This week, we get to hear some of the story as told by Jody, but it's only just getting started. With that being said, what did you bring to sip on this week, Kenzie? I brought over that vodka soda mixture that we had. I don't even know how long ago. Probably it was a while ago. It was a while ago. It's the the high noon sun sips vodka and soda pineapple flavor. Ooh, I know. jealous. I know. Excited. What are you drinking, Amy? Well, I'm going to be indulging this evening in a ginger ale. <laughs> no reason at all. Just because I bought a large pack of them. And I don't think anyone else in the house knows that they're here. <laughs> so that's what I have. I love it. And you always have the mini cans. Too. The mini cans. <laughs> so I'm not even going to lie. Outside of this, I rarely drink anything that has carbonation in it. Yeah. I mostly like a coffee in the morning and then water the rest of the day yeah. kind of person. So I feel like I can't do an actual size can of anything with carbonation. Sure. Isn't that funny? I'm the same way, too, because I anytime I buy pop, and it's usually only Dr. Pepper yes. when I do, and I have it once in a while, maybe one a week, maybe one every two weeks yeah. at dinner, but I cannot drink more than the mini can. Right. It's just too much for me. It is too much. And this, some people might be really grossed out. I even forgot to put this in the fridge. So this is room temperature <laughs> ginger ale. <laughs> You do you. But I don't care. I don't know. Like, it still it's, tastes good. The bubbles get me enough. So yes. it almost gives you that sensation of being cold. Yes. Even though oh, it's not. Oh, for sure. For I don't sure. know. Is that just me? No, I get that. I, I also grew that. up with two parents who literally drink room temperature pop. So, and we say yes. pop here, not soda. Yep. But for those of you who don't know, soda is what we yeah. mean. <laughs> yeah, they always drink room temperature. So to me, that's it's interesting. not weird. Yeah, no. If you grow up that way, that's all you knew. So, right, yeah. right. I grew up really fucked up, apparently. <laughs> Just kidding, mom. Love you. Okay, so before we get started here, I just want to take a quick second and ask any of you who are listening to after this episode, because of course, you're not going to want to stop it right now. Uh, No. But after the episode, if you could quick run out to wherever you're listening on your podcast app to rate and review us, it helps us out a lot. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start reading those reviews. So if you want a little shout out, you'll get a better chance of doing that if you rate and review us. All right. With that being said, let's pop those tops. Let's do it. Ooh. <laughs> I immediately smelled pineapple. I mean, the second it opened. Really? Yes. Okay, let me sniff it. It's really nice. Oh. It's Vera. <laughs> <laughs> it's Vera good. I, I... <laughs> Veramatic. <laughs> Very aroma-y, but I don't even think that's a word. No. Now that I'm thinking about it, it's just stupid. That's aromatic. Oh, let's, let's just get into the story. All right, Kenzie, why don't you start us off? Okay. While you're still sober. <laughs> yes, yes. So this week's episode is called A Lover Scorned. We start off this part with some on-screen text that states, A month has passed since Travis Alexander was found dead in his home. Jane Velez Mitchell comes back and reminds us that Travis had gotten 27 stab wounds and he was almost decapitated from the throat slit that he had that was ear to ear. I forgot about that. And they mention it multiple times in this episode. 
I always forgot that he had his throat slit, too. Well, and that's not all. He was then shot in the head. If that wasn't enough, if the 27 stab wounds, the decapitation, if that wasn't enough, let's get a shot to the head. I mean, at this point, why didn't she just light him on fire? And you guys, I don't know why I did this, but I Googled and saw these photos. I still forgot to. I... What did you Google? You can go in and see these crime scene photos. And I'm telling you, it is out of something you've never seen. I mean, it's how did you Google it? What did you write? It's horrible. I think it was Jody Arias crime scene photos. Jody Arias. Yeah. And it's horrible, you guys. Next, we get a narrator telling us that Travis's ex-girlfriend, Jody, denies responsibility for the murder, but Detective Esteban Flores has discovered evidence that places her at the scene of the crime. Beth Karras comes back, that legal analyst, and she tells us that there were photos of Jody taken on the day that Travis was murdered. And they were very pornographic photos. Yeah. They were both naked in these photos. Yeah. And then they have that photo of her foot with Travis's head and bloodied body. So it's a very close up photo of her foot. And you can see almost like the top or the back of his head. I finally figured out what it was this yes. time. Yes. And you see like blood dripping down his oh, neck yeah. and onto his back. And then in the far distance of the photo, you see his foot. It's like, yep. how unbelievable that this would take. Like his, his camera would actually take a photo like this. It is crazy. I know. It is so crazy because no one was taking this photo. This just happened by it itself. Happened. My guess was it had an accidental like timer on it. Right. Right. That's the only thing I could think of. I don't know how else a camera would take a photo unless you set something up like that. Right. Because these were not these weren't touch screens, really. These were like regular cameras. Right. So, yeah, it had to have been somewhat of like a timer situation. That's what I'm thinking. Delayed. I don't know. That's what I'm thinking. Now, I had a little side note that said, you know, why do we need to see these photos again? Like, I'm pretty good at the first part. I, I didn't really need to see them again. But, you know, that's that's me and my life. And you Cut know. to us five <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> like, I could never see that image again in my life and I'd be perfectly fine. Be like, cross your fingers that you never have to be on a jury for a murder trial. Because they have to see all of that. Oh, my gosh. So they have to look at the actual. So what I was thinking about while we were watching this one is the jury who has to talk about these 27 stab wounds, the almost decapitation and the gunshot. So they're obviously going to show, you know, that picture of like the drawn out body that we all see where they like mark where where everything was. yeah, Yeah, I think it's the medical examiner does that. What did we call that? It was like a body chart, right? Yes. Yes. Body charts. Yeah. So they did the body chart. And in my head, I was like, okay, but like that doesn't show a lot. No, they probably showed all of the actual evidence, the crime scene photos to really display how gruesome this was. They show every single piece of evidence they have. So all pictures. I mean, I I don't know. I'd get sick. I, I don't know. Okay, if you ever get called in for jury duty for a murder trial, I will put on a red wig and I will be you because I think that would be awesome. I know. I think I would. I think I would still want to do it. I would just be like, you know, holding my hands to my eyes a little bit and like shielding. So my vision wasn't fully on these photos, like helps my sanity a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Even though it does nothing. (laughs) Do you think we could like draw like a filter that you could just like hold up (laughs) and it like makes everything look like glittery or something? There you go. (laughs) 
Now we're back to that interview with Jody and Detective Flores. And again, Detective Flores says that there's no doubt in his mind that Jody had did this. There's none. Yeah. He knows for a fact that she committed this crime. Oh, we all do. Yes, for sure. Yeah. Now, on July 15th, police placed Jody under arrest in Wairika, California. We learn that the detectives also spoke with her parents after she got arrested. Beth Karras comes back and says that Jody had grew up in a stable home. She was the oldest out of all of the children. Her father had owned a restaurant. He was pretty successful. They were a middle-class Christian family. Yeah. And she had really good relationships with her siblings, but she had more of a volatile type of relationship with her parents. Yeah. And I think it all had to do with rules, and she didn't want to follow rules. Uh. She didn't want to do what her parents told her to do, you know? Seriously, I could not be a parent to a kid like that. No, I was a kid like that. <laughs> really? Yes. I was not. Oh, my God. I was, I'm telling you, Amy, I was the fucking worst. I like, want to talk to your mom. I'm, t- I'm <laughs> saying 14 to like 17, I was the worst human being. I, it, it, terrible, terrible. I was good at school. I, you know, I was in sports and stuff, but I was defiant. I yeah. never wanted to listen to authority. Horrible. I was defiant outside of my home. Like, oh, sure. Not sure. to my mom. I mean, I've always been strong willed. So my mom never tried to like, I don't know, like if we wanted to argue, we would argue. But I was never to a point where I was so disrespectful sure. or anything like that. And I followed her rules for the most part. Yeah. Mostly because my brother didn't. And I saw yeah. how much trouble he got in. I was like, uh, I still kind of want to be like allowed <laughs> to go do things. Right. So I followed rules. But oh, I got kicked out of class many times for just being completely out of control Mm -hmm. towards my teachers. It happens. I think you're not wired fully when you're in your teenage years. You are a loose cannon. Everyone is. Like, your emotions are everywhere. Your hormones are everywhere. Some of us want to grow up way faster than we actually are. that was me. That was me, too. Yep. Now, the detective starts interviewing Jody's mom. And Flores asks her, you know, are you doing all right? Of course, we know it's not good. Oh, how she reacts is how I think I would be Yeah, reacting. yeah. And her mom goes, not good. No. She goes, I feel like I'm going to puke. And she's, you know, crying. Oh, she's sobbing. She's very emotional. She's like moving around a lot in her chair. You could tell that like all of this was very surreal for her. Like she oh, couldn't yeah. believe that this was happening right now. And that her daughter, Jody would be a part of something like this. Yeah. Now, through her mom's tears, Jody's mother, Sandy Arias, gives insight into her relationship with Jody. Now, her mom says that Jody is a very intelligent person. Jody was always telling her mom that she needed to read and basically educate herself for a better life. And I'm like, bitch, that's fucking rude. Shut the fuck up. Like, that's your mother. Don't be telling your mom to do those types of things. That's your mom. You respect her. That's that's rude. Well, and my guess is because they had at least four kids based on the family photo that they showed. That's what I was thinking. If not yeah. more, she probably didn't have time to do all that because she was busting her ass so that you as a spoiled little brat could right? do whatever the fuck you wanted. Oh, I know. I hated that. I and, hate it. too. And her mom didn't even really see bothered. By it. I so think maybe, she was probably just so used to being yeah, disrespected. It, it must have been. Because I'm like, that's something really rude to say. Like, this woman brought you up. You lived a pretty decent life. It's not like you were unsheltered or, you know, unfed. Like, you guys had right. a decent life. So that seems weird. Yeah, she, like, brought it up because she said, you know, because she never went to college. Jody, you kind of, like, harped on her about it. Right. Ugh. I know. And according to actually both of her parents, her grades had started to drop when she became a rebellious teenager. Been there. And 
again, it kind of goes back to her always needing a boyfriend. I think that probably had something to do with her grades dropping too, because she didn't care anymore. She didn't care about her grades. She wanted the comfort and love from a guy. Oh yeah. Her worth was put in whoever she was dating. For sure. Now, Bill Arias, her dad, recalls an incident where Jody got caught growing weed in the eighth grade. That seems young, is it not? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think I smoked it for the first time when I was in like sixth or seventh grade. But growing it, yeah, it's they're in California. Oh, it seems extensive to me. I'm like, holy shit. Yeah. Well, he goes on to say that this is when their relationship started to go downhill. And her parents had actually called the cops on her. And that's when a switch happened in the relationship for Jody. Okay. First of all, bad parent move. Yeah. Why are you calling the police on your daughter for growing marijuana? Especially when that could probably put something on her record for the rest of her life. Like, I don't know how strict it was or like if it was just like a slap on the wrist. They didn't really go into detail. About they didn't that. talk about it. But it's like. You're going to actually go to that point where you could potentially put something on your child's record for the rest of their life when they're a new teenager. Like, what, she's 13 at this point or however you're old when you're in eighth grade? It's like, come on. It seems extreme. Well, and it's not like she's in there cooking meth. I mean, my God. Right. It is a plant. Yeah. I'm sorry. It's a plant. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) My God. I can't even. I read that and I was like, the sheriff for pot? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, and they were just those type of parents. They they probably lived by the rules. This was completely illegal. And they wanted to teach their daughter something. That's a harsh lesson. It is I a feel harsh like. lesson. I feel like that's just overboard. It is. I don't know. Maybe it that's is. just me. Nope. Nope. I completely agree. I, I would have never done that if my God, daughter no. had done the same thing. I mean, that that is excessive. I mean, confiscate it. Yeah. But I would not have called the police no no not at all and no and this is when jody started hiding everything from her parents i kind of get it she never told them anything again yeah now beth says that jody had moved out after her junior year of high school because of a curfew issue she didn't want to live by their curfew she wanted to stay out later she wanted to do whatever she wanted i wrote spoiled brat yeah and she said that her parents were just too strict so she left to go live with a boyfriend and the parents were really at their wits end at this point I mean, who wouldn't? I would. I would probably be like, all right, fine. See you. See you. Bye. Yeah. Don't corrupt the rest of our kids. (laughs) Their relationship had been strained for over a decade. So it's a long time. So this really I mean, when she moved out, it had been strained the entire time since she was still a teenager. And that's that's tough. It's tough to go through life without your parents. Well, you know, it seemed like they were a close family. So you think that that would I don't know. I, I just feel like. Not having them there for support in any way or always feeling like she needed a guy around because now she doesn't have her parents, you know? So I I don't know. For me, that would be tough. I would never be able to not speak with my parents for 10 years. I mean, that no. that's a long time. Well, I feel like that's a very fucking childish thing to do. Yeah. And I feel like she never truly grew up. No, I don't think so either. You know, she was like a little girl in mom's heels. For sure. For years. Yep, I, I agree. Her dad, Bill, says that there was some weird behavior days after Travis's death. She had actually came over and told her parents that she couldn't tell them what was going on, but that she had to leave because she might be blamed for something. Yeah. Interesting. Who says shit like that? Well, right. That's And this was really before weird. any, pol- I mean, she had been reaching out to the police voluntarily right. asking questions. Right. And, and I wrote, 
Well, maybe because you left a perfect bloody handprint at the scene of the crime. <gasps> I, I mean, is that why you'd be blamed for something? She can or... explain the blood. She can't explain <laughs> the palm print. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, the next day after being arrested, so July 16th, Detective Flores tries again to question Jody and get a confession. Because mm-hmm. remember, he already knows it's her, but she hasn't actually said it. Right. I love it because at this point they show, you know, them in the interview room and she's wearing that orange jumpsuit. Oh, and I'm like, yes. Psycho. I That's know. what I wrote. <laughs> I know. I love it so much because it's finally like real. Maybe. Yes. Like it's real. But is it real for her now? I mean, does it finally feel real now for her? I don't, I don't know. know. I really think that she thinks she's going to get away with this. Oh, yeah. At that point in time. And that's why she's not confessing. Right. That's why she's making up all these stories, because in her mind, she thinks at some point she's going to get away with it. But she changes her story about four times. It's like that is a telltale sign that you're lying. Like, what? who is ever going to believe you when you're changing your story that many times? Right. You know, she's the worst. Mm hmm. So she tells Detective Flores that she had been taking photos of Travis while he was showering. And then all of a sudden they were interrupted by this mystery man and woman, this Mm -hmm. couple that barges in. (laughs) Now, Detective Flores says, do you know what they looked like? Did you know them? And she goes, no. And then Jody says they were white Americans from what I could tell, which to me was like, what? I don't understand what that means. I know it's. Again, it's because she's literally making this stuff up on the spot. Like, yes. No, she sounds like a blubbering idiot. I mean, truly coming up on the spot with the story, it seems like. It, that's exactly what she's doing. Yeah. So she says these two people walk in and she's like, they're wearing beanies, but like the kind that cover your whole face. And I wrote down, yeah, a ski mask. Fucking Einstein. <laughs> I. She had no clue what it was. I, I think, didn't Flores correct her too? Yeah, he was like, yeah, a ski mask. Because she's like, you know, the kind that has like the cutout eyes and like the mouth. The mouth, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Weird. And so she goes on to say that they had attacked Travis and that she thought she'd be next. Okay. Jody then starts crying and says, quote, I chickened out like a little bitch. End quote. Yeah, but no. So she says she runs into the closet and the guy told the girl to, quote, finish it. And then there was a struggle. And I wrote at this point, anyone else eye rolling hard as hell right now? Because I was. There was no sign of a fucking struggle. They would have brought that up. None of it made sense. And if there was two people there and they brutally murder Travis, there's no fucking way they're leaving a witness. Exactly. There's no fucking way. I mean, they're putting guns to her head, but they're not going to shoot her. Right. They're not going to stab her. They're not going to do all those things to her. They're going to let her leave the house and drive away. No fucking way. Nope. Doesn't make sense. So she claims that she wrestled a little bit with the girl and that this woman, like, kept trying to, like, stab her with this knife. Right. And she keeps basically saving herself by, like, holding on to the woman's wrists so that the knife... She goes, you know, like in movies, how you're, like, struggling with somebody. And I'm like, oh, my God, you're so she, such a moron. She's literally taking her references for movies. From that movies. Just, just proved it. Yeah. She says the guy and the girl then have an argument back and forth where the girl wants to kill her, mm-hmm. but the guy doesn't. And I was like, well, of course not. Why would a guy want to kill you, Jody? Of course, the woman wants you dead. Of course, yeah. 
Flores then asks, well, why didn't they kill you, though? And she's like, that's not what they're there for. It was obvious that they were there for Travis, but they never said why. She then mentions that the struggle with this girl during their little wrestling match on the floor left her wounded on her hands. And then I put, remember the cuts from part one where she shows up in Salt Lake City with cuts all over her hands? So Flores goes, well, let me see. Now, remember, this is 30 days later. Right. Right. So, of course, if there were any superficial little cuts, they would be mostly healed by now. You might see a little bit of like. Sure discoloring from like the skin coming back together right yep yep. we've all injured ourselves and seen it much later on after it's healed so he goes well let me see and she's like well you can't really see it just by looking at it and she goes but it's my finger you know like it isn't the same anymore and conveniently, it's right on the crease of her hand, like I, right on the crease of where like, her finger. Good fucking God. Are you kidding me? Like, I'm like, does she actually fucking think that anyone's believing this bullshit? Like, that is the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Like, it just I so know. conveniently is on a crease on your finger. One little so crease. It doesn't look like a cup, but it could be a cup because there's a line there, right? Because that's and my the finger hasn't been the same finger. since. Yes. Totally hasn't been the same since. I literally thought that her fucking nose was going to start growing super fucking long like Pinocchio. Like, right? are you kidding me? Like, everything you're saying is a crock of shit. Everything you're saying. Yeah, it was awful. It was horrible. It was so awful. Jody then goes on to say that the guy had then taken her ID out of her wallet and was kind of shaking it in front of her and said, well, you must be that bitch from California. And I wrote like she's a celebrity or something in this town. <laughs> Why would anybody? Okay, whatever. I said, insert Stanley Hudson eye roll from the office. (laughs) Yeah. Give me a break. For real. (laughs) I saw the meme right there from (laughs) it. He then threatens to take care of her and her family if she ever spoke about this, of course. And she's like, they have my address. They know where my family is. Blah, blah, blah. Beth comes on the screen and says the intruders let her go. So she at this point runs out of the house jumps in her car and starts driving as fast as she can to Salt Lake City. But when she gets to Salt Lake City, her boyfriend, Ryan, at the time, yeah, said everything was normal. Yeah, she didn't act like anything was weird. Interesting. Yeah, because I think even if that were a true scenario that had happened and she was truly scared about, like, you know, telling anybody for fear of her own life, you wouldn't be able to pretend everything was fine when you showed up at this guy's house. No. You would still be shaken up. You would be traumatized. That is a traumatic incident. A little bit. (laughs) She does not know trauma. No. So Detective Flores asks her, so you just left? Like you never called for help or anything? And Jody's response was, I was really freaked out of my mind. She got the out of her mind part. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. So Flores pushes back. Because, of course, he wasn't born yesterday, right? So he says, well, I've done this a long time, and this is the most far-fetched story I've ever heard. It's (laughs) not going to help you. (laughs) And her response to that, being like having her bullshit called out, was, I just don't want my family to get hurt. Because she's believing her own shit right now. She's insane. It's crazy. I mean, it reminds me of like a compulsive liar. Like she is believing... Everything that comes out of her mouth as if it was true. Yeah. 
And it's clearly not. Except she's missing that part of her brain that like makes it make sense first before she says it. Exactly. So Flores tells Jody that she has been charged with first degree murder in Travis's death. Now, after Jody is behind bars, Juan Martinez takes over the case. Brian Skoloff says that Juan may have a small stature, but he's a giant when it comes to questioning witnesses. Oh, my God. And we find that out in the courtroom. I kind of like him. I do, too. And I was not expecting that of him, to be honest. When I first saw him, he looked very, like, timid and and mild and... By the book. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Just uh, very smart. Like, you know that he knows his shit, but I just did not expect this. I didn't either. No, I like it. Beth Karras tells us that Juan had a lot of work ahead of him with this case. Could he actually prove premeditation or was this a spur of the moment fight? Because again, he's going after first degree premeditated murder. Juan tells us that he found something important to the case when reviewing Jody's trip from Wairika to Travis's house. And he didn't want to share that information with anyone yet, but he knew that this was fully premeditated and he wanted Jody to get the death penalty for what she did. I was at this point wanting to fast forward to find out what this was. I know. I was like, are we actually going to find out what this is right now? Because he didn't share it with I us know. yet. Beth says that Juan knew Travis suffered horribly right before he died. I mean, come on. This guy was stabbed over 20 times. I think it was 27 times, 27 right? Seven times. His throat was slit and he was shot in the face. I mean, that's horrifying. No, it's bad. That's it's a real bad. lot of damage. Yeah. Now, because of how horrible this crime was, the prosecution was seeking the death penalty. As the prosecution is preparing for the trial, the case starts gaining notoriety. This is when shit gets fucking crazy. Yeah. Beth says that the arrest of Jody made it a national story. The mugshot really struck a lot of people. Yeah. Again, it's that fucking damn grin that she has that looks like she's doing a glamour shot, you know? Right. Yeah, it looks like a senior photo. It's just so fucking weird. It is so weird. And she goes on to say that anytime a beautiful woman is facing the death penalty, it captures the nation's attention. Of course, because there is not a lot of women that have had to face the death penalty. No. And or get the death penalty. Right. And the ones that do look like Eileen Warnos. (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. Yes, just like the one that just got put to death for stealing that woman's baby and killing her. Yeah. Oh, my God. People, seriously. (laughs) Now, Jody notices all the attention, of course, and she loves it. Laps it up like a dog. Loves it. So as she notices that this is starting to happen, she decides to use it to her advantage and do an interview with Inside Edition. Of course. Immediately. And they're, you know, she's probably getting people trying to get interviews with her left and right. So mm-hmm. she's she's loving this. Yeah. Now, Jody tells the two invaders story again to Inside Edition and explains that she could have never done those heinous acts to Travis. She loved Travis, right? She could have never done that. And she even said that no jury is going to convict her simply because I'm innocent. And then she goes, mark my words. I'm like, sorry, bitch. They found you guilty as fuck. Yep. Sorry. You nuts. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) We meet Monica Lindstrom. She is another legal analyst. And she says that Jody had said, God knows, Travis knows, and I know I'm innocent. 
I does think she only know how to lie? Like, it is crazy to me. It is crazy. Like, it's so unbelievable it, it how is. far she will go. It is. I, I Man, it's it's very scary. I mean, it's truly a mark of a sociopath. Yes. I mean, they. I have listened to some interviews of, like, serial killers, too, where, I mean, up until, you know, the day that they're going to be executed, they will not mm-hmm. admit to what they did. Oh, for sure. And it's like... Because they make themselves believe that they're innocent. They actually, like, block that shit out of their mind and, it's like, insane. literally think they didn't do it. it it's very terrifying yeah. that people can do that. Yeah. Like, can compartmentalize their brain that way and literally make them believe. It's like they're acting in a play. Yes. Yes. It's it's nuts. Yeah. Now, Juan says that it struck him because it appeared that she was laying down the gauntlet. Like, she was really trying to challenge the prosecution with doing all of these interviews. Yep. Right? And really putting her name out there in the media. And again, now it's nationwide coverage of Jody Arias every single place you go. Yep. Oh, she is double dog daring. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Beth Karras tells us that Jody was a nightmare for a defense team. And it was because she couldn't stay away from the media. I mean, she loved that. She loved herself. Oh, yeah. She wanted everyone to know who she was. Like, her beauty was the forefront of who she was. I mean, well, she, we know how shallow she is yes, about that. for sure. And that's never good for a defense team, especially with a murder trial that's going for the death penalty. Yeah. That's not going to be good because once things are recorded, you can't go back on them. She already said them. Brian Skolov tells us that Jody had came across as a sweet, soft-spoken girl. And, you know, everyone thought that there's no way she could have done something like this. And it was almost like she was trying to flirt her way through the trial. A hundred percent. Seriously. <laughs> that is exactly what she's doing. Oh, you can smell it from oh. a mile away. It's horrible. It's really horrible. It's bad. Now we get to see Nancy Grace. You know, it would never be a true documentary without some Nancy Grace. Well, especially this type of a case. Yes, I love this. I love it too. So Nancy Grace is shown watching one of these televised interviews that Jody is giving. Yeah, it looks so, like from the jail. She's yes. just having like a press conference almost. Yep. So it's like a side by side of Jody giving her interview and then Nancy Grace on the other side. And you know how animated she is. I love it. And she sees Jody fixing her makeup in between questions. And she states, and I quote, oh, you got to get your makeup straight before you're asked questions about your lover's murder. (laughs) I love it. I know. I'm like, this is gold because it's true. That's all she cared about. Who is giving her fucking makeup? Come on. Why are we? Pearl Fernandez. That's who they're both in the same jail. (laughs) They're just sharing powder. Oh, my gosh. Well, okay. so I wonder what state she was tried in was she's tried in california she was tried in arizona it was in arizona because that's where the murder happened or at least she was i mean she was arrested in california so i don't know if they immediately interesting she could have been in the same prison as fucking pearl fernandez maybe i mean ririca's up north pearl is down in like the la or like south la we need to to google that we need to figure that out that'd be pretty interesting they're probably swapping brushes back and forth (laughs) Thank <laughs> you. 
Fact, over 700 people have been killed by the hands of the police just this year alone. I'm Katherine Sheffield, host of the weekly podcast, A Few Bad Apples. Each week, I unravel true stories of victims whose lives have been affected by bad apple officers of the law. I bring this relevant conversation into the public spotlight because it's a way to provoke change and reform. Not all officers are bad, and in fact, I highlight a positive story at the end of every episode to balance the spectrum. A Few Bad Apples is available wherever you get your podcasts. In 2009, Jody gets a court-appointed public defender, Kirk Nurmi. Mm -hmm. At that time, he had been with the Maricopa County office for about nine years. So he was not new, but definitely new to her. Jane comes on to say that Kirk Nurmi is basically the polar opposite of Juan (laughs) Martinez. He's tall. He's huge. And he must have lost a lot of weight from the court to when we talk to him in this documentary or we see him because I almost didn't think it was the same person. Oh, it didn't look like the same guy at all. Not at all. It was super weird. Yeah. Yeah. Super weird. So he's done something. Good for him. Good for him. Absolutely. He looks younger now. He does. Yeah. And he's super soft-spoken. He's very intelligent and methodical, but not like Juan, as we come to find out. Right. Now, Kirk says that he found out right away that she had been on TV. And basically, that's like rule number one. You should not be talking about your case on television with anybody before it's gone to trial. No. But he knew that she was going to be one of those women who would make her own choices in that regard. And he just couldn't do anything about it. He said during the first meeting with her, it was definitely more casual than a typical first meeting might be between public defender and client. He's so weird. Super weird. He said it was kind of like talking with someone at Starbucks, which (sighs) that makes sense. It actually totally makes sense being that it's Jody. Yeah. And I feel like she's super comfortable around guys. So she wants to make them feel comfortable so that they kind of let their guard down around her. I mean, she's a man-eater. And she's flirting her way through all of this, for sure. Yes, yes. He says that the whole conversation was much more lighthearted than you'd expect with anybody else who is facing the death penalty. Yeah. And he says that as the relationship progresses, she would get to a point where she would call him almost every day, which is highly unusual in these types of situations. Again, it's like obsessive. Like she's obsessive over her lawyer now. Like maybe it's the only phone call she's allowed to make. Yeah, that I would wonder. make sense. That would make, and she doesn't talk to her parents. So that would make sense. And the only other person she loved, she killed. So, right. <laughs> well, and Beth Kerr says she, at one point, she even asks him to look after her cat. What? <laughs> that is like delusion. Come on. For real. What do you think he is? Your personal assistant? <laughs> He's your fucking attorney. He doesn't give a shit about your cat. And you're not even paying him. No. For his- he was court appointed. Yeah. You're not even like tipping him. <laughs> fucking weird. Oh. Kirk goes on to say that the demands became overwhelming. He had to cancel between three and four different weekends in Vegas just to work on this trial. And I wrote exactly why I'm not an attorney, because yeah. I don't want that in my life. Yeah. Nope, I need to have my off time. And I wrote, uh, I see you, Kirk. Gambling man over there. Going to Vegas or what? (laughs) 
Hey, sometimes <laughs> it's all about the pool. I know. I want to go back so bad. It's so cold here. Me too. I know. <laughs> it's so shitty here. I'm over it. I know. Kirk knew from the beginning that the intruder story was bogus. Of course. So he decides to learn everything he can about the relationship between Jody and Travis to try to figure out what direction they're going to have to go with when it comes to her defense. <sighs> oh, I just hate that because you know that he's probably under the assumption that she did this. Well, yeah. So like what angle they need to take as a defense team with her, because the story that she told is completely unbelievable. Well, the first yeah. story of her not even being there was completely unbelievable. Right. And I was like, how does he dig her out of that hole? Yep. He's got to do something. Exactly. So Jane Velez Mitchell comes on and says that Jody at this point starts accusing Travis of being violent, abusive, mm -hmm. sexually degrading, and even, oh yeah, a pedophile. Add that in for good measure, just to sprinkle on top. She is fucking a bitch. God she damn so it. is. So now she's now she's playing the victim card. Yes. Right? And it's like, God, you are the worst, Jody. The yep. worst. Yep. So in June of 2010, she completely abandons the whole masked intruder story. It never happened. God. In this case, she admits that she was at his house and that she did kill him, but in self-defense. Of course. So Kirk says there was a bunch of evidence consistent with a claim of self-defense. In my opinion, it was consistent with Travis having self-defense, not her. I know. I'm but calling bullshit on all of that. For real. None of this makes sense. No, it doesn't. Now, in January of 2013, the trial is amping up. Beth Karras, the legal analyst that we've been talking about in the yep. last, well, two episodes, she was the one that was there covering this story. Yes, she was. So she's also like a crime reporter. So she's covering the whole thing. She says that the night before the trial... She's seeing TV trucks lining up, reporters getting their spots, yep. crowds are forming. The whole dichotomy of the sex, the religion, this beautiful couple was like nothing she had ever covered before in her career. She said that people were even canceling vacations and flying in from all over the country just to get a coveted seat in the courtroom. <laughs> And I wrote, Kenzie, can we do that sometime? Right. Because <laughs> that would be kind of cool. That would be so cool. I didn't cool. know you could just show up and get a seat. You can, but especially like ones like this that are super infamous and are highly televised, it's almost a guarantee you're not getting a spot in the actual courtroom. Well, I think we should try. Yeah, we should try. Maybe one here close because then we don't have to like fly somewhere. Unless it's winter, because then we have to stand outside. Yes, yes. And then we should go down south. Then we should go down south. <laughs> yes. We should go somewhere with a death penalty state. Yes, we that should. That might be interesting. That would be interesting. Yeah. So the trial starts on January 2nd of 2013. We meet Bill Zervakos. He is a jury foreman. So he's the spokesperson for the jury. And he hadn't heard anything about this case prior to the trial. So he was basically the perfect juror. I love that. I do, too. He just hadn't heard anything. He wasn't watching the news, clearly. Yeah. <laughs> not this stuff. No, not at all. Diane Schwartz was another juror, and she says that the first impression she had of Jody was, how could someone so young and tiny be involved in a murder? Yep. So it was all about that first appearance of Jody. Yep. And 
Jody was really playing the schoolgirl naive type of role. Yeah. In court. And by what she was like wearing. 27. Yes. By what she was wearing, by how she did her hair. She was wearing glasses. Things that were little to no makeup. Yes. Did you notice she kind of ugged herself down a little bit? For sure. Yeah. Now, Juan Martinez tells us that his only goal in his opening statement was to appreciate the violence that the defendant inflicted upon Travis. Now, we get the opening statement from the prosecution, and I definitely did sum this down. I did not do it word for word. Mm -hmm. I started and then I got tired. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Juan tells the jury that it's not a whodunit. We know that Jody did it and she was in the courtroom with them. But he wanted to speak about the facts that were going to be presented and how they showed that Jody had planned all of it. Premeditation at the forefront of this trial. Martinez pins down a motive for the jury as well, which is revenge. We could have guessed that. Clearly, yeah. Now, Juan states on May 28th of 2008, Jody had texted Travis about his upcoming trip to Cancun. He had asked Mimi Hall to go with him and not Jody. Mm-hmm. Jody was definitely jealous. There's no way she wasn't. She wanted Travis all to herself. Yeah. But he was moving on and doing things with someone else. Well, and I like how Juan even says during this opening statement something to the effect of how Travis was a good man, even according to Jody. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with regard to being a good man, all she had to do was slit his throat as a reward. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. He really, some of the things he says in court are just so jaw-dropping. I love it. I'm like, oh my gosh. But he really makes a statement. And I think that's what he needs to do to help the jury understand the magnitude. Yeah, he's not trying to sugarcoat this shit. Not at all. Because she sure as hell didn't during this murder. Right, right. On June 4th of 2008, Travis is in the shower and his defenses are down. As we know, when you're naked in a shower... You are in a very vulnerable place. The most vulnerable, I would say. And most relaxed, I think, too. You're in a hot shower. You're warm. Most of us just took a pee. I mean, (laughs) it's the shower. And that's when Jody stabs him. A struggle ensues and Travis grabs the knife or tries to grab the knife from her. Yeah. When he does that, it actually results in more blood because he's probably grabbing from The blade. The the blade of the knife, not the handle. At this point, he was more than likely very close or near death at this point. But Jody had to go out and get a gun and put it right to his temple and shoot him in the head. Yeah. That brought me to the question, if the roommates had been home, how did they not hear a gunshot? I was kind of wondering that along with the whole like struggle itself is like did gonna he be loud not make any sound did she i mean yeah that's not gonna be quiet i can't flush it's my so toilet in this house without everyone knowing what's going on it's so weird and I, I i don't know if it's like even if you're in other parts of the house the hallway is not that long right you know what i mean and the downstairs is not that far away you would be able to hear a gunshot go off so my only thought too is that we know that this happened early evening, right? Like 5.30 or so. True. So they could have been out. What if they hadn't come back from work yet? That's true. That's the only way that I can figure they didn't hear. Yeah. 
and didn't notice that he hadn't left yet. Sure. That would that would probably be the only thing. But it's like he has two roommates. Did they both just happen to not be there at the time? I mean, they must have because Jody left without no one seeing her and locking she was probably the door full of blood and everything like that. Right. You know, so I guess that's probably what happened. I hope that's what happened. <sighs> I know. I hope they weren't in the house. Now, looking at how brutal this crime actually was with the stab wounds, the gunshot wound and the slitting of the throat, that completely goes against her self-defense theory. No, it does. Like you wouldn't need to go to that extent of self-defense if it really was self-defense. Right. You know, like you just want to get them off of you if they're really attacking you. So. Yeah, you may, if you have a gun, you may try and shoot them. If you have a knife, you may try to stab them. You're not going to do all of those things. Right. Like, you're going to do anything you can to get them away from you so you can leave. Yeah. Like, get the fuck out of there. Like, you don't care if they're alive or dead. You just want to get out of there. Right. You know? You're not sticking around to see the end. No, not yeah. at all. So Jane Velez Mitchell tells us that Juan gets right to the heart of the case the violence and the inconsistencies and lies in Jody's story. Of course, she is lying one after another, changing her story at the drop of a dime. Like and none of them makes sense. None of it makes sense. And it's all over the place. Like to a jury, it's obvious. Yeah. It's obvious. I mean, I hope so. You would hope so, right? Now we turn to the defense team with their opening statements. And Jennifer Wilmot is going to be the one who is presenting this for Jody. Mm -hmm. Now, she wants to take kind of more of an emotional point of view. She basically has to make Jody look like the victim in this situation. Of course. of course. So she starts off by talking about how on the outside, these two appeared to be in a very loving and healthy relationship, but that's not how it truly was. She says, in reality, Jody was Travis's dirty little secret. I can't disagree with that. I don't disagree with that either. At all. But I think she liked it. So Jane at this point comes back on the screen. I also love her. She's so animated. <laughs> and she's like, I'm sitting there thinking, oh, my God, they're going to put the victim on trial here. Yes. <sighs> and that's what they're doing. So Jennifer continues by saying, despite this image of him being this good Mormon man, he had been pushing and pushing and pushing Jody into a sexual relationship with him. While on the inside, Jody can be that sexual release that he wants. Mm -hmm. But on the outside to everybody else, he could still pursue the appropriate Mormon woman that he is to marry. At this point in the documentary, they give us a little teaser mm -hmm. of what sounds like a very explicit phone call between Travis and Jody. Right. Unfortunately, you guys, we don't get to hear it in this episode, but I am willing to bet we get to hear it in part three. Yes, I think so. Yeah. I can't wait for that. And I think it's going to be really juicy. Oh, for sure. But I'm like, how did they get a recording? Because of that? she's a psycho. I bet she recorded it. So is she it. the one recording all this? Oh, I bet she did. It is. A hundred percent. I bet she recorded that phone call so to weird. save it. Beth Karras comes back on and says that all of the sexual details that were starting to come out were so off of the radar of what the other Mormons in the community right. of Mesa Arizona knew about Travis Alexander and people were shocked. I mean, he's supposed to be a virgin right? or at the very least at this point now, maybe celibate and saving himself for marriage. Correct. Right. And he was such a big staple in the Mormon community. So right. this really, really shocked people. Yes. 
And remember, in this community, they're supposed to not have sex until marriage. So a lot of this is probably very like, whoa. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Coming back to Jennifer in the courtroom, she goes on to say that it was Travis's continual abuse that forced Jody. And on June 4th of 2008, it had reached a point of no return. Brian Skoloff comes in to say that with Jody's story now developing, she claims that she's taking pictures of him in the shower and she accidentally drops his camera and he flies into a rage and attacks her. She's afraid for her life and has to kill him in self-defense. This is the story she's now going with. And I say, can I get another Stanley Hudson eye roll over here? Because, yeah. God, it's so far-fetched. Everything is so... Do you really think someone who is in the shower, you drop their camera, yeah, it sucks and people are going to be mad. Do you think they're going to fly off the handle and like try and kill you over that? Especially this guy who owns a five-bedroom house, drives a BMW, and can't afford to get a new camera if he it's, needed to. It's so, it's so far-fetched. It I, I can't believe anything that she says. I know. At this point, Travis threatens to kill Jody. And she has no reason not to believe him based on the past of their relationship and his abuse. Beth Karras, that legal analyst, comes mm -hmm. back on and she says, it's a huge risk to attack a victim in a murder case. But in this case, it's necessary for Jody's defense because that's all she has. She literally doesn't have a defense anymore. No, it's gone. Bill, the foreman of the jury comes back on and he says that something that kind of struck him or resonated with him was when Jennifer Wilmot said, this is a woman who had an absolutely normal life until she met Travis Alexander. And that changed the trajectory of her life, which in some cases, yeah, I kind of get that. To some extent, I can believe a little bit of that. I think she went nuts over him. Yeah. I don't think he turned her crazy. Right, right. Does that make sense? I agree with that. Yeah. The state then makes their case. They need to build up Travis's reputation again, obviously, because now he's being thrown in the mud. Yeah. And they decide to call Mimi Hall to the stand. So Jane reminds us that Mimi and Travis, again, had met through the Mormon community in the Mormon church and that, you know, they'd went on a few dates, but Mimi really wasn't interested and just wanted to be friends. Yeah. We get to hear Juan Martinez questioning Mimi on the stand. Juan asks her that during a date that they had went on, had Travis ever said anything inappropriate to you or sexual to you? And Mimi said no. And Juan goes, did he kiss you during that date? Mimi said no. Juan asks, did he ever hold your hand? And Mimi says no. She goes, at most, he gave me a hug. And that she felt safe with Travis, that he was very respectable and there was nothing that set an alarm off in her head, right? Yeah, I mean, it seems perfectly fine to me. Right. And she seems pretty strong as an individual. Yes. She yep, didn't look sure. meek and, and nervous up there. She Not seemed pretty comfortable. Not at all. And she was very confident in what she was That's saying. That's the word, confident. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, Juan brings up a problem Travis was having leading up to his murder. And we learn that Travis had a stalker. <gasps> no! I actually was a little shocked by this. Were you? Simply for the fact that he told Mimi about it. Yeah. I felt like he was always trying to keep Jody in the dark with everyone. 
Yeah. That it's interesting that he told Mimi. So maybe he felt safe with Mimi too. Maybe he felt that connection where he wanted to open up to her. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I mean, he never truly tells her the name of the stalker. Sure. Yes. But I wonder if maybe some of the instances that we learn about happened while those two were kind of going on those few dates or hanging out a little bit. So maybe she kind of was like, well, what's going on? And he kind of, you know, opened up about it. Maybe he was making sure she was going to stay safe. Right. So if Jody was going to try anything against her, like keep just, an eye out. Yep. The yep. shit's happening to me. For sure. Yeah. That would make sense. I literally just thought of that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's probably it. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to talk this stuff out. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that's why we're here. That's doing why this. we're here. <laughs> now, Juan asks Mimi, Travis had mentioned the stalker was a female, right? And Mimi said, yes. Juan then goes, what had the female done that he needed to warn you about? And Mimi tells us that. She had slashed his tires, broken into email accounts and bank accounts. Damn. Snuck into his house through a doggy door at night and slept on his couch. Okay, how big (laughs) is this doggy door? Well, she's tiny. But how do you get your shoulders through that? Do you have to like go sideways, like in your head too? Like... Or like crunch in on yourself? That seems... Oh my God, that seems so fucking bizarre and that is fucking horrifying behavior and yet it did not strike me as something too far-fetched of what jody would try to pull (laughs) right like it totally when she said it i'm like oh yeah jody probably totally did that oh now that we know how jody acts with things it does make sense that she do that so obsessive that she couldn't get away from him for sure yeah we learned that mimi confirmed the stalker but travis never named the stalker So I found that interesting, too. Yeah. Because if you're trying to maybe protect someone, you may want to inform them of who it is. Potentially. But maybe he was a little embarrassed by his relationship with her and that he was still kind of having a relationship with her. And maybe he didn't want to give that last detail about the stalker. Yeah. Or maybe he's even kind of embarrassed about the fact that he let somebody like her into his life. Yeah, for sure. Like not seeing the signs. Right. Now, Dave Hall comes back. That, again, is Travis's friend. Yep. And he says that they knew Jody slashes tires from the beginning. All of his friends knew it was Jody. Yeah. But they never really feared for his life simply because of Jody's stature again. Yeah, like she was like 110 pounds. How tiny she was. And, like, they never thought that she could physically harm him. Well, no. When you look at the pictures, I mean, he's twice her size. Right. Now, prosecution starts attacking her claim of self-defense. Of course they're going to do that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Beth Kara says that stabbing, slicing, and almost decapitating someone is a complete massacre. Yeah. It is. It's not self-defense. Like, that. it does not add up. That story does not make sense at all. No. We meet Kevin Horn on the stand, and he is a medical examiner in Maricopa County, and he performed Travis's autopsy. And he is hot as hell. I know. Oh, I wrote hot damn (laughs) next to his name because I was just like, I was not expecting that. He does not look like a medical examiner. I am used to an old wrinkly guy with glasses. Like, that is who I'm used to. (laughs) Yes. No, he is so hot that... Knowing what he does for a living, I would be terrified to be alone in a room with him because he. Yeah. Yeah. Just nope. 
Mm-mm. Well, we learn that uh, Dr. Horn is very experienced in his field. Yeah. Like he's been doing it for a long time and he's really well respected. Now, Brian Skoloff tells us that Kevin Horn had testified that Travis had been stabbed 27 times in the back, in the head, and pretty much all over his body. Yeah. His throat was cut from ear to ear and a gunshot wound above his right eyebrow. Bill, our jury foreman, comes back and says that this guy was really chopped up. And I'm like, I know. I hate that word. Like, that sounds horrible. I know. It sounds like a butcher. Literally. Oh, my gosh. Now, he said that it was hard to look at the photos analytically because you knew that it was a human being. Like That's what I meant. Yeah. In my head, I was thinking they were just looking at that body chart. And like, here's where this was. Here's where this was. It's a drawing. It's two dimensional. But no, like they're looking at fucking crime scene photos and probably autopsy photos. For sure are seeing autopsy photos. Which are super creepy. Bess says that Jody couldn't even look at the photos. Like she would glance, but immediately look away and no one could even see her face because her hair was completely covering her face and she wouldn't look up to see the photos. Travis's family also had a hard time and some of them even needed to leave the courtroom. Oh, could you imagine like seeing your loved one all brutalized and horribly murdered, like up on a big screen in a courtroom? Like, no. Oh, God. That is the definition of a nightmare. Seriously. I mean, that might completely change your life looking at something like that. Yeah. Well, and you think about it, too, like a lot of people like don't want to see somebody in that state because that's the, you know, like they don't want to remember them that way. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think it's silly to think that way, but oh, that's still. I think it would be hard, though, because those photos are gruesome. Well, he lived away from his family. He was in a different state. So who knows when the last time he saw them? For sure. We get to see Juan Martinez questioning Kevin Horn. And Juan asks him if he's familiar with the term defensive wounds. And Kevin says, yes, if there are injuries to the backs of the forearms, palms or hands, it's usually consistent with grabbing of a knife or trying to fend off injury, which completely makes sense. Absolutely. It's always your arms that are like kind of up defending your face. Right. He tells us that a person would have to be conscious and alive to make those kind of movements. Clearly, if you're already dead or incapacitated in some way. You're not able to hold your arms up. Yeah, which is how they know how quickly it happened. Correct. In other cases, they'll say she was killed immediately. There was no sign of defensive wounds. Right, exactly. And in Travis's autopsy, they did find wounds consistent with defensive wounds. Yeah. So they knew he had been alive during this struggle that had ensued. Sure. Now, Juan switched over then to the gunshot wound. We learned that right before the trial started, Jody said she shot Travis and he was struggling a bit, but he didn't fully die yet. So she took a knife and started stabbing him. But that didn't make sense either. Sure didn't. And it all goes based off of, again, the medical examiner's diagnosis, I guess, of of what really happened due to the wounds. Yeah. Kevin Horn testified that the gunshot wound would have incapacitated him, meaning he wouldn't have been struggling. That would have been a wound that left him either dead or incapacitated. He couldn't move his arms. Right. And Horn lays it all out for us. He says that 
A gunshot wound and wounds to the neck would have had to come after the defensive wounds on the hand. So the stabbing happened first, then it was either the throat slit or the gunshot wound because those two wounds would have killed him. Yeah. I mean, the gunshot wound was to his head. That would have nicked his brain in some way, shape or form. He wouldn't have still just been fighting. We're not like chickens. Right. We don't just keep moving after we're dead. It's interesting what the defense comes back and says about that. Yeah. Jennifer Wilmot comes back on for the defense and she says this is all flawed. Because of the decomposition, there was no evidence of hemorrhaging when the bullet passed through the brain. Yep. So in her warped way of looking at this, she believes that this basically challenges all credibility of Dr. Horn. And he's hot. He knows what he's talking about. Shut the fuck up, Jennifer, <laughs> and just sit down. And how are you going to go against a bullet being shot in someone's head? How After is it, 27 stab wounds. How is it not going to go through the brain? Like, she's also trying to say that it didn't go through his brain. Where did how? she Where, where did, did it, it go? Out? Did it go from the temple right out his eyeball? No. Like, <sighs> no. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. When it's Juan Martinez's turn to get back up and start questioning people, he calls Kevin Friedman, a police officer from Wairica, California, to the stand. Now, on May 28th of 2008, Kevin Friedman had responded to a call about a home burglary for Carolyn Allen. When he gets there, he finds out that a few things have been stolen. A DVD player, a CD player, a little bit of cash. Yep and a 25 caliber handgun. Now, during the interview with Carolyn Allen and her husband, who they don't name, a car pulls up in the driveway and they all, you know, they're standing in the living room. They all kind of stop and yeah. turn and they're like, oh, that's just our granddaughter. And Juan goes, okay. And who was it that stepped out of the car? And Kevin goes, it was Jody Arias. Beth Karras explains that this burglary had happened one week before Travis Alexander was murdered. And her grandfather's gun, that 25 caliber handgun, is the exact same gun whose bullet shell was found at the crime scene of Travis Alexander. Like, shouldn't this be the nail in the coffin? I like, mean, you come think, on. Come on. The problem is the gun was never recovered. Sure. My guess is she got rid of it somewhere between Travis's house and Salt Lake City. For sh- she threw it out the goddamn car. Somewhere. In the desert In somewhere. the desert, yep. yes, for sure. Now, on the ninth day of the trial, prosecution finally rests its case. Juan explains that he tried to be as thorough as he could with each piece of evidence, but did he do enough yeah. to prove premeditation? I'm sure they always second-guess themselves. They have to because they don't know what the other side is going. I mean, they know the evidence, but they don't know how it's going to be presented. And some people are just more convincing than others. Yep. Not uh, not Jody, but (laughs) some people are more convincing than others. (laughs) We're definitely not talking about Jody in that scenario. Seriously, (laughs) would never, ever win an Emmy (laughs) or any other thing. No, never. No, she's terrible. So Kirk Nurmi now takes over with the proceedings and he calls Daryl Brewer to the stand. And we find out he didn't want his face to be shown. So I found that interesting. I didn't. 
<laughs> Someone who doesn't want to be associated with Jody. Well, <laughs> yes. We find out that he is a handsome, chiseled guy two decades older than Jody. I think that's why he didn't want to be on camera. Well, I wanted to see what this quote unquote handsome, chiseled person looked like. Did you Google him? I didn't Google him, which is weird because typically I would. Yeah. But the reenactment actor that they had, not a chiseled, no, handsome guy he just at looked all. like an old guy. <laughs> No, they literally just got an old actor to play him. Like that's they they didn't try to actually specify the same characteristics here. Like two decades older. All right, you'll do. You're gray. <laughs> that's all we need. Yeah. That's all we need. Now Nermi wanted to get him on the stand because he really wanted to tell the jury who Jody was at that time. Because we find out from Beth that Jody had dated Daryl Brewer between 2002 to 2006. He was the boyfriend she broke up with for Travis. So the one she had been with for quite a while and literally came home from her convention and said, yep, we're we're done. done. See you later. Need to wait for Travis or wait for my husband. I got to save myself for my husband or whatever. Now, Daryl says that Jody was a responsible, loving and caring person. And Jody knew about his son. So he had a son prior to her. Obviously, he's 20 years older than her. I was wondering how old this kid was. Yeah, yeah, I know. Because he could potentially be close to her age. Right. Depending on when he had his son, right? Yeah. And Daryl says that Jody and his son had a great relationship. Oh, I'm sure they like, did. Like, it was better than most people would expect it to be. What Daryl did really good is he humanized Jody for the jury. Yeah. I mean, they were hearing horrific stories this entire time about how Jody was a horrible human being, which I do believe she is. Uh-huh. But this was the defense's like last straw to get them to remember that she is a human being herself. Well, and it also goes along with that narrative of how she had a normal life before she met Travis. Correct. Yes. So Travis, in essence, corrupted this. Daryl was an important part of this case for the defense, but Juan had something up his sleeve. Yeah. As he always does. Yes. Now Juan starts questioning Daryl and Juan says, she did come to your house on June 3rd, 2008, right before her trip, right? And Daryl goes, yes. Then Juan asks, before she left, you gave her two gas cans, right? And Daryl goes, I did. Why would she need to have gas cans for a trip like this? Yeah. Right? was interesting. Well, yeah, you're not going out into the middle of nowhere. Right. And that's something that Juan stated, that there's gas stations everywhere. Yep. You're in California. They are literally on every street corner. Yep. So it didn't make sense. And it struck him as odd as it would. And by the way, this is that little piece of evidence that he kept to himself. The one we didn't get to hear right away. Yes. Which wouldn't have made sense back then. It wouldn't have made sense. No. But Juan tells us that detectives had actually recovered a shoebox full of receipts from all over California, Nevada, and Utah, but not a single receipt from anywhere in Arizona. Hmm. So Jody was going to use this as her alibi for sure. Why would you hold on to all of that in a shoebox if you were never in Arizona. And you wouldn't. That's the thing. That's I mean, weird. I think she was trying to be sly. And again, her mom had said that she was intelligent and she'd always been intelligent. Yeah. So she was thinking ahead. This was all premeditated. So she was thinking like, totally. I need to make sure 
I keep everything I can to make sure my story is straight. Yeah. Because she had all of the pieces. They just didn't. It, it was too much. Oh, and remember, her first initial story was she was never in Arizona. Right. She never even went to Travis Alexander's house. She didn't even know that that happened. So no receipts would have backed that up. Exactly. Now, Beth tells us that the prosecution believed she needed the gas cans to be able to get into Arizona and out without having to stop for gas. And I go, that's actually pretty fucking clever. I know. Who thinks of shit like that? I don't that? know, but I need to go buy a couple of gas cans. <laughs> Holy shit. Like, this was to the T fully premeditated. Right. Holy shit. Yeah. Well, because she didn't want the receipts, but she right. also didn't want to be picked up on any yep. video footage from any gas station. Crazy. So she could have paid with cash. Yeah. But she would have been seen. Right. Yeah. Can you imagine if Travis would have had like a home security system oh. or like a camera outside his house or something? And like none of her story would have mattered. Like it was a security system he didn't or she didn't know about. How fucking cool would that have or been? Or if he was like kind of a sicko, like and was recording stuff in his bedroom. <laughs> I'm just Secreti- secretively recording yeah. stuff. Yeah. Juan tells us the reason she didn't want to have any record or trace of being in Arizona was because she knew she was going to kill Travis. This is where all of the premeditation comes back into play, of course. Right. This is how he can prove the premeditation. Yes, absolutely. And this, again, is the premeditation to its fullest getting these gas cans. I mean, how do you explain them away? Right. Now, at this point, the defense is probably a little freaked out. So they decide to call Travis's ex-girlfriend, Lisa Andrews Didoni, to the stand. Now, she's this real young Mormon. She had only dated Travis the later part of 2007 and the early part of 2008. They make it very clear that she was a virgin at that time. Because, again, this is five years later. So she may be married and, like, not anymore. Sure. (laughs) Sure. She tells them how she had believed that they were in a committed relationship, but eventually knew that she wasn't. Yeah. She felt at this time that sex had been on his mind from the beginning. The defense brings up an email that had been sent to Travis by Lisa, where she's kind of telling him to, like, cool off. Mm -hmm. Kind of, she's almost a little upset about... Maybe him becoming aroused during a kiss that they shared. Sure. She mentioned something about how the kiss didn't really mean anything to him because all it was doing was just getting him sure. in the mood, that type of a thing. Jane comes on quick and says it was super clear that Lisa did not want to be in this courtroom. <laughs> it was kind of awkward. She to watch looked her really awkward and cringy. Yeah. <laughs> She just she looked like she did not want to be saying any of this out loud. I know. Like yeah. you could tell she was like grossed out and like holding her arms yeah, and together. Grossed like out she for just sure. did not want to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Then, as we mentioned, she found out that he had actually been cheating on her with Jody. She finds this out through one of his ex roommates who had told her sister who then told her. Remember, it's a small Mormon community. Yes. Everybody knows everybody. Juan comes on to cross-examine Lisa and he makes it really known to everybody and reminding Lisa that a biological response of an erection during a kiss couldn't be helped. And Lisa agrees. She says, yeah, knowing what I know now, I realize that happens. You can't stop it. You can try, 
but you can't stop it. Right. He even brings up the situation of saying, well, when you guys kissed and this happened, did he massage the erection away? And she was like, no. And he goes, did he ask you to massage it away? And she goes, no. Oh, my God. This was like, "Ah, I hated watching. (laughs) I know. But at the same time, like it truly shows that he wasn't trying to push her into doing anything. Right, right. So Lisa agrees. She goes, yes, I was naive back then. And some of the things that she had thought about him and said in the email now she knows may not have been as they were perceived at that time. Correct. Out of some, I don't know, last ditch effort or maybe just a moment of boldness. This was crazy. Juan decides to show a picture of the decapitated or mostly decapitated head of Travis to Lisa and asks her if she thinks that this would be an appropriate response to an erection that was not warranted. Immediately, the defense objects. I mean, immediately. Because he's yelling at her. He's yelling at her, (laughs) for sure. I mean, he's trying to freak her out. The Both counsel is called to the bench Travis's sister jumps up and leaves the courtroom and all hell breaks loose. This was clearly done for shock factor. But in a way, I kind of think it was done really well in a fucked up way. But I think it did what it was supposed to do, especially for the jury, especially for the jury. At this point, reporters had wondered if at any point Jody was going to take the stand. And she was. Mm-hmm. So now they're thinking, oh, my God, she's going to tell us the story. Oh, and then the last thing we see is her raising her hand. Being sworn in, being sworn in on the bench. And I'm like, ah, I know. God, so excited for next week's episode. I know. And I don't watch ahead. I don't know if you Oh do. no, I don't. Nope, I don't, because I don't want to have to watch it a second time to take notes. Yeah, no, I OK, I've seen this documentary a while back, but I don't remember all the details. Obviously, we right. know that she's in prison, all that kind of stuff. But I'm very excited for next week's episode. Me too. I can't wait to finish this series out next week when we cover part three. It's really unbelievable, to say the least. And it still shocks me that she even wanted to take the stand. After all the testimony that she saw, that it still is weird to me. Oh, it does not shock me one bit. I think it's because she just loves the attention. She's such a narcissist. That's all she wants is people to be looking at her, talking to her. Like, she thrives on that. Well, and as we mentioned, she doesn't look like the Jody we've seen in any of the pictures nope. from her dating anybody. She's going to try to really sell this it deal. It annoys the shit out of me that she's wearing, like, a butterfly clip in her goddamn hair. Ew. And no makeup and glasses and, like... I don't even she know what kind like, of outfit she's wearing. I don't know either. But I was like, did your mother dress you? Like, oh, yeah, no. Just another ploy for her. Another little game. Exactly. Now, be sure to tune in next week for the crazy conclusion of Jody Arias, an American murder mystery. Come join our Facebook group, Sheer Crime Podcast Discussion Group. We share updates, memes, all that kind of fun stuff. Yeah. Find us on Instagram at Sheer underscore crime underscore podcast. We're on Twitter at ShareCrimePod. Please send all of your episode requests to our personal inbox, requests at ShareCrimePodcast.com. Stay safe out there. We love you all. And don't forget, never run with scissors. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye.